1940, the Imperial Wargraves Commission had 526 permanent employees in France and Belgium. The vast majority were gardeners who tended the cemeteries of the First World War. Other employees were artisans, mechanics, clerks, officers, and there was one nursing sister named Betty Stewart. All of them dedicated their lives to caring for the dead. Over the past four years, I've been researching the ordinary people who worked for the Imperial Wargraves Commission, which is now called the Commonwealth Wargraves Commission. I traced them through archives in the UK, the United States, and France, and I interviewed their children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews. I also found the families of the airmen that some of them rescued during the Second World War. That research will soon be a book called The Caretakers, Wargraves Gardeners and the Secret Battle to Rescue Allied Airmen in World War II. It's due to be published in early 2024. But one book could not possibly contain every story. There were so many more gardeners and so many more gardeners' wives and children who deserved more space than I could give them in the book. This podcast will tell some of those stories. Each episode will follow one person from the Wargraves community on the Old Western Front. Some made daring escapes from France during the Nazi invasion in May 1940. Others were arrested and sent to internment camps. And some joined the resistance. Today's episode is about Frederick Martin, a gardener from Cornwall who lived through the invasion of France in 1940 and spent the next four years in an internment camp. When I was thinking about making this podcast, I had a hard time deciding who should be in the first episode. Should it be someone whose story was typical, a representative case, or someone who was really unusual, whose story stood out from all the others? I ultimately decided to start with Fred Martin because he's sort of both. He was, broadly speaking, a pretty typical Wargraves gardener. But there's also one thing about him that's extremely unusual— And that is that his personnel record survives in the Commonwealth Wargraves Commission's archives. That's really unusual. In the 1980s, 1990s, the commission destroyed more than 96% of the gardener's personnel files. It was not something that was done out of malice. It was just they were considered old files of no particular interest to anyone, so they were discarded. These were huge files, full of correspondence and medical records and photographs. The ones that survive, including Fred Martin's, are usually two to 400 pages long. They're an unbelievable treasure trove. But you can also imagine how much shelf space they took up when there were hundreds and hundreds of them. The commission did save quite a few of the officers' files, but nearly all of the gardeners' files were destroyed. There are a handful that do survive, including Fred Martin's, and that means that we've got a lot of his own words about his experiences during the Second World War. In particular, there are two documents that I really wanted to share because they are Fred Martin telling his story in his own words. Now, a little bit of background about Fred Martin. He grew up in Cornwall, near Truro, where he was oldest of eight children. His parents were grocers. As a teenager, Fred trained as a professional gardener. 
Most of the men who joined the Wargraves Commission after the First World War were not trained gardeners, but some were. What was more unusual about Fred was actually that he served in the Navy, uh, mostly on minesweepers in the English Channel, but also around Gibraltar. Most of the Wargraves gardeners in France served in the Army. A handful served in the Navy or the Royal Air Force, and some were in the artillery. But the most common backgrounds for both the gardeners and the Wargraves Commission officers were Royal Engineers and Royal Army Service Corps, which makes sense. Often those were people who were experienced in building things on the old battlefields, and some were already doing burial work for the Army before they joined the commission. But lots of gardeners were ordinary infantrymen, and they were from many different regiments. In my book, The Two Gardeners, who are the main protagonists, one of them served in the Irish Guards, and the other was in one of the Manchester Pals battalions. There are lots of other stories that I'm hoping to talk about in this podcast about people from other regiments, the Gordon Highlanders, the Coldstream Guards, other Pals battalions, and also the Dominion regiments. It was really important to the Wargraves Commission to hire gardeners from Australia and South Africa and New Zealand and Canada. One of the Dominion regiments that was best represented among the Wargraves gardeners was the 22nd Canadian Infantry, the Van Dues, which was a French-Canadian battalion. There were quite a few gardeners from that battalion. They spoke French, they were Catholic, a lot of them married French women, so they were more willing to stay in France for the long haul. But back to Fred Martin. Fred was first hired by the Wargraves Commission in the summer of 1920. He was back in Cornwall after his service in the Navy, and he saw an advertisement for gardeners and applied. As far as I can tell, he had never been to France before he was hired, so again, that is slightly unusual. Most of the gardeners had served in France during the war. At first, Fred was hired as a gardener's laborer. That was the lowest rank of gardener. Usually, a gardener's laborer was a sort of trial position that men did for a year or so to learn the basics. And then they were promoted to the rank of gardener caretaker. That was the ordinary basic rank for gardeners, like a private in the army. But in Fred's case, his supervisors realized very quickly that he was already well-qualified for the job. He was only a teenager when he trained as a gardener before going into the Navy, but he clearly knew what he was doing. Fred was only in France about two weeks before his supervisors promoted him to gardener caretaker, so he just tested out of training, basically. And that was a big deal. Gardener's laborers made two pounds a week, but gardener caretakers made an additional 10 shillings, so that's a 25% raise in just his first two weeks on the job. And Fred kept doing a great job. He proved himself very capable, and he was soon promoted to sub-foreman gardener in charge of three other gardeners working in seven cemeteries on the Somme. So at this point, Fred Martin is about 24 years old, and he's doing really well. He's taking on more responsibility, he's being recognized by his supervisors, and he's now making a solid three pounds a week. I mention the exact pay because it is an important part of the larger story of the gardeners. Fred Martin's wages kept increasing because he kept getting promoted. But that was actually the only way for gardeners to get raises. The wage-earning staff did not have yearly increases built into their pay scale. The only way for them to earn more money was to rise through the ranks and get promoted. Fred Martin was able to do that, but most gardeners were not. All of them were hired around the same time, and they were all of similar age, similar experience, similar seniority. So there wasn't sort of a normal turnover over the years like you would have in a normal industry. 
The commission's staff was largest in the beginning. The size of the staff peaked in 1922 when they had about 2,600 direct employees in France and Belgium. And then after that, they reduced the staff over the late 1920s, especially around 1928, 1929, when most of the cemeteries were completed and they needed fewer people to maintain them. They just started laying off a lot of the wage workers, a lot of the gardeners, a lot of the craftsmen, mechanics. And so by the early 1930s, they had a staff of around 550 and it stayed at around that level until 1940. So there were fewer and fewer gardening positions over time, and that meant it was really not easy to be promoted. By the 1930s, you have gardeners who haven't had a raise in years, who don't have any chance of promotion, whose families are growing. You know, there are quite a few Wargraves families with four, five, six kids. There's one family with 12 kids. And the wage issue was one of the reasons behind some of the labor disputes between the gardeners and the commission that really start cropping up in the late 1920s and into the 1930s. Eventually, in 1936, the gardeners formed a union and they brought various claims against the Wargraves Commission in the industrial court in the UK. And they won. They won their first case in 1938, much to the dismay of the commissioners, including Sir Fabian Ware, who was the the founder of the Imperial Wargraves Commission and its chief administrative officer. The commissioners thought of themselves as generous employers, so they were not really very happy to have the industrial court come along and rule that the gardeners' contracts were not fair. But they didn't really have a choice. They had to start giving the gardeners yearly raises. But Fred Martin was actually doing pretty well, even before the gardeners unionized. He got those early promotions. And by the 1930s, he was a head gardener, which is the highest rank for gardeners. It's sort of equivalent to sort of a sergeant in the army. He's in charge of other men, but he's below the officers who, in the Wargraves Commission, there's sort of a division between the wage workers, who would be equivalent to other ranks, and the salaried staff, who would be like the officers. And in fact, in the Wargraves Commission, they did use officers' ranks. They, you know, the head of a, of a branch office would be named Captain so-and-so. The staff at higher levels would be major or colonel or brigadier. So they they used those army ranks, even though they weren't active duty. In 1932, Fred Martin got married. His wife's name was Clarisse Damonville. She was from Flixicourt on the Somme. And they settled down a little farther north than her hometown, so in Bouquois, which is just a little bit south of Arras and a little north of the Somme battlefields. But they were very involved with Clarice's family life, and they actually ended up adopting two of her nieces, one before the Second World War and then one afterward in the 1950s. The first little girl was named Jeanette, and she was nine years old in 1940 when the Germans invaded France. Now, the invasion of France is a major event in world history. You could spend your whole life just reading books about those few weeks in May and June 1940. The parts that are most relevant to the Wargraves gardeners are the speed and the location of the German advance. The invasion started on May 10th, and by May 19th, the Germans were already bombing the Wargraves office in Arras, and their tanks were getting very close to the city. 
The invasion cut right through the battlefields of the First World War on the Somme and in the Arras area, and nearly all of the war graves gardeners lived within a 60-mile radius of Arras. So the great majority of the community was in that area that was encircled by the Nazis. The Germans reached Buquois, where Fred Martin and his family lived, on May 20th, just 10 days into the campaign. The Martins did attempt to evacuate. They weren't successful, but they did try. That was a tough decision for the Wargraves gardeners, whether or not to leave. Millions of French civilians were fleeing. The roads were crowded with people trying to get away from the German advance. But many of the Wargraves gardeners in France hesitated to join them because they had orders to stand at their posts. On May 10th, 1940, when news of the invasion broke, the Imperial Wargraves Commission issued a formal written order to all the gardeners in France to stay at work in their cemeteries unless they got an explicit order to evacuate from their local mayor. They were told that if they left without direct orders, they would lose their jobs, they would lose their pensions, and that was really a serious threat. The Wargraves officers in France did enforce those orders. Even very late as the Germans were breaking through, attacking Arras with tanks, the officers were still ordering gardeners not to evacuate. In several cases, gardeners came to the Wargraves offices trying to get permission to leave, and officers just sent them back to their cemeteries. The commanding officer in France who enforced this policy was a Canadian named Brigadier John Mervyn Prower, and I'm sure I'll talk more about him in another episode, but for now, the important part is that he was still ordering gardeners to return to their cemeteries all through the end of May and even into the first week of June. So as the disaster unfolded, the commission's official policy was to keep gardeners in France. Sir Fabian Ware, the founder and leader of the Wargraves Commission, issued an order saying that even if they did need to leave the active battle zone, they should still stay in France. That order is dated May 20th, the same day that the Germans captured Bucois, where the Martin family lived. There's a copy of the order in the commission's archives, and underneath the typewritten body of the order is a handwritten note which is written and signed by Sir Fabian Ware, and it says, the above makes it clear that we expect the commission staff to stick it. So those were the orders coming from the Wargraves Commission. Things were different in Belgium, and I can get into that later, but for now I want to stay in France and get back to Fred Martin and his family. As the officers issued these orders, Fred and Clarice Martin were getting more and more nervous. Even before the tanks arrived in Buquois, the Luftwaffe was bombing and strafing the crowds of refugees on the roads all around them, and most civilians were leaving. Now, the commission's orders said that people had to stay unless they received an explicit order from the mayor of their village. But in most of the small towns in France, there were never any formal evacuation orders. The mayors just left with everyone else. No one needed a formal order because it was obvious that they needed to get out of the way of the battle that was coming their way. But without explicit orders, the Wargraves gardeners were violating their commission orders. So some of them decided to leave, and some decided to stay, or they waited too long, they tried to leave late. Everyone had to make their own choice. Fred and Clarice Martin decided to go. They left on May 17th, which was a Friday, um, about 72 hours before the Germans overran the town. 
Now, I know I promised that we had some of Fred Martin's own words describing this experience, and I want to quote from a pretty extraordinary letter that he wrote during the evacuation. This letter is dated June 4th, 1940, so that's just as the Dunkirk evacuation is ending. And the Martins have gone in the other direction. They went west, to Brittany, trying to find a ship that would take them to England. And this letter is written from a chateau in Brittany where they've found shelter with other refugees. The letter is from Fred to his mother and his family in Cornwall. June 4th, 1940. Dear mother and all, Well, here we are again. Still alive, but what a time we all had. I lost Clarice and Jeanette for two weeks. I have two suits and a few odds and ends. We left Bouquoir on the Friday morning, May 17, with the farmer and his family next door, and had to leave almost everything behind. The battle is raging in the Somme now. I think our house is down by now. I saw plenty of ruins on the way. The Germans started bombing on the Sunday morning. The first was about a hundred yards from us. After it was all day long and he was machine-gunning the evacuees on all the roads, it was terrible, especially for the children. Jeanette had her cry, It's not war, but destruction. Civilians were killed by bombs and machine-guns and some English soldiers just covered by blankets by the side of the road. It was terrible for two weeks, but thank God we are all safe and sound. This is something a lot of the gardeners talked about in their testimony about the evacuation. Being caught on the road as German planes bombed the refugees and strafed them with machine guns. Many of the gardeners wrote about hiding in ditches on the side of the road or seeing civilians killed in these attacks. And in fact, a couple of the gardeners were killed during the evacuation, along with at least one gardener's child. But the Martins survived. So here's Fred again, writing to his mother. We got over a bridge in the Somme five minutes before the Jerrys blew it up. They hit it twice by bombs before we crossed. There was no time to think. I had to keep shouting to all to run or be left prisoner in German hands. He bombed every village on our way until we got a hundred miles further west. We thought of staying in Flixicor, but the first day he was right over the house at five in the morning, and all that day he was dropping bombs on the canal, railway, and everything else. I have not seen or heard of any of our commission boys yet. They have all scattered. I heard from one of our soldiers that one of the officials in our Arras office was killed by bombs. I am afraid they did not all get away in time. He rushed through to Boulogne, but what a loss of lives. They must have lost almost a million, I should think. Our air force is splendid. Just to note here, the Arras Wargraves office really was bombed on May 19th, as part of a larger attack on the Aris train station. No one in the Wargraves Commission office was killed. All of the officers and nearly all of the clerical staff got back to the UK safely. Back to Fred, telling his mother about the refugees on the road. There were 
thousands on the roads. It was black with people and Jerry kept his eye on them. They are devils to machine gun the refugees. I saw plenty of civils laid out. Amiens is just flat. No doubt there are 20,000 civilians dead there by the bombs. Well, you get more news than us. We are 45 here, mostly from the Somme. I left my wireless behind in the cellar with the crockery. I got three suits of clothes and some odds and ends, but I got all my contract, insurance and all the papers of the house and grounds, so I don't mind so much as long as we save our skin. If you have a map of France, look for Brittany. We're just opposite Plymouth, near a town called St. Brieux, about 15 miles. It's similar to Cornwall for weather, but the people old-fashioned, but good. Not far from Roscoff, where the broccoli comes from. Well, I must close. Remember us to all. Write to this address. We may leave here, it all depends. They try to keep each county together. It's easier to find each other then. After twenty years, I never thought we should be refugees in France. Still, keep smiling. There's worse than us. Goodbye. Best wishes. Yours, Fred Clarice Jeanette. Fred, Clarice, and Jeanette were never able to get on a ship. They did not escape. I'm not entirely sure why. They were in Brittany on June 4th when ships were still available. The last group of Wargrave staff who got away embarked on June 20th as part of Operation Ariel, which is the operation evacuating people from the French Atlantic coast. But the Martins weren't with them. The letter made it back to England, but they didn't. And I can't say for certain why that happened. It might have just been bad timing or confusion. But it's also possible that it may have had something to do with passport controls. Remember, Fred and Clarice Martin adopted Clarice's niece, Jeanette. But that may have been an informal adoption, not a legal one. I've seen legal adoption papers for the niece that they adopted in the 1950s, but not for Jeanette. And also the Wargraves Commission records don't have Jeanette listed as Fred Martin's daughter for benefits or compensation. And there's some confusion after the war about whether she's eligible for clothing coupons and other benefits. So that just makes me think that it's possible the adoption was not a, a formal one. And if Jeanette wasn't legally adopted, she probably did not have a British passport. Some of the ships evacuating refugees from France at that point were still enforcing passport controls, even in the middle of the invasion. And that became a major problem for quite a few gardeners' families. It was really common for the gardeners' families to include stepchildren or adopted children or grandchildren. And those kids generally did not have British papers. There were also more than a few cases where British gardeners were not legally married to their French partners sometimes because they were still married to women in the UK and they had left them after the First World War. They'd stayed in France and 
started new families with French partners, but they hadn't gotten divorced in the UK. So that became very complicated. And especially during the Second World War, when official papers really mattered, several gardeners and their families suffered because they didn't have the right legal papers. One gardener who tried to get around the passport issue was Ernest McFarlane from Portsmouth. He had several children, including an adult daughter who married a French man and decided to stay in France. So McFarlane used her British passport to help his son's French fiance escape. Her name was Odette Dupuis. McFarlane swore that Odette was his daughter, so she was allowed to board the ship. And when they got back to Portsmouth, she went to work at the Airspeed Aircraft Factory in Portsmouth. But eventually it came out that she was really French and she didn't have British papers or permission to be in the country. And the British authorities prosecuted Ernest McFarlane for helping an undocumented person enter the country illegally. They also prosecuted another Wargraves gardener, Charles Posford, because Odette lived with him and his wife in Portsmouth. So he was charged with failing to report an undocumented alien. Both of those gardeners, McFarlane and Posford, were fined by the court. There were several other cases, many of them involving men who weren't legally married to their French partners and and wouldn't leave them behind. But the point is that these issues around legal documents and nationality became really crucial during the evacuation. I don't know for sure whether the passport issue is the reason why Fred and Clarice and Jeanette were unable to get away, but it is one of the possibilities. Jeanette had a different last name, and the adoption, if it wasn't legal, she wouldn't have had the passport, and she was nine years old. They couldn't leave her behind. So perhaps they couldn't find a ship. Maybe something else happened. Maybe someone got sick or injured and and couldn't travel, or maybe there was difficulty with the documents. I, I really am not sure. But whatever the reason, the Martin family stayed in France. At this point, Fred's personnel file has quite a few letters from people who are desperate for information about him. There are pals of his who worked for the Wargraves Commission in the 1920s, relatives, his brother, and of course his mother. And they're all writing to the Wargraves Commission saying, where's Fred? Have you heard from Fred? We had this letter in June and nothing since. In August 1940, Fred's mother writes to the Wargraves Commission and she says, I have had no news of my son since a letter dated June 4th when he had got to Brittany. It's terrible, day after day. We have wrote to Cooks to trace him, had them advertised, but still no news. The Martin family did not return to Buqua. That's probably because they couldn't get there, even after the fighting stopped. Under the Nazi occupation, France was carved up into different zones, and it was really difficult to cross from one zone into another. The well-known example is the demarcation line between the occupied zone in the north and the free zone in the south, but there were other internal borders as well. And the one that was really important to the Wargraves gardeners was the northeast line, which ran along the River Somme. The two northernmost departments, Pas-de-Calais and Nord, which is where a lot of the gardeners lived, were carved away from the rest of France and put under the jurisdiction of the Nazi military occupation zone. So that was headquartered in Brussels, and it was separate from occupied France, which was headquartered in Paris. The northern part of the Somme department, so 
north of the River Somme, but south of the Pas de Calais, that strip was part of a buffer zone, the Forbidden Zone. And then the Somme, the river, was the demarcation line. That line was pretty difficult to cross, especially in the first year of the occupation. Refugees who had evacuated to other parts of France had a hard time getting home. And that's what happened to the Martin family. Buqua is in the Pas de Calais, so they just couldn't get home. They were internally displaced. The Martins ended up in Dinan, in Brittany. They were there for a few weeks, and then in early August, Fred Martin was arrested by the Germans. He was British, so he was an enemy alien, the citizen of a nation that was at war with Germany. And so he was arrested and sent to a civilian internment camp. Now, civilian internment was common, both during the First World War and during the Second World War. The Allies also interned civilians who were enemy nationals. Like, in the UK, they arrested thousands of Germans and Italians, including some German-Jewish refugees. The U.S. and Canada went even farther. They interned foreign nationals, but they also incarcerated more than 100,000 of their own citizens of Japanese descent. In the U.S., we sometimes refer to that program as Japanese internment, but they're really two very different things. Civilian internee is a term that applies to people like Fred Martin, citizens of a country that is at war with the country that they live in, and they're interned. Whereas most of the Japanese Americans and Japanese Canadians were American citizens and Canadian citizens. So that's a different category of government persecution based on ethnicity rather than a program of civilian internment based on nationality. About 175 of the Wargraves Commission gardeners were interned. So were dozens of their wives and quite a few of their children, especially boys over the age of 16, but also some younger children as well. Fred Martin was arrested August 9th, 1940, just two months after he wrote his letter to his mother. Since he was arrested in Brittany, he was sent to a camp in Saint-Denis on the outskirts of Paris. There were other gardeners at Saint-Denis, 30 or 40 of them, uh, and mostly from the Somme. The gardeners from Pas-de-Calais and Nord were sent much farther away to a camp called Ilag 8 in Tost, which is, it was in Germany then, but it's in modern-day Poland. Ilag 8 was a, a pretty grim camp. It was really far away from the families. It was really cold. It took a very long time for them to receive Red Cross parcels, you know, food parcels that were critical to the survival of prisoners. They didn't really start getting those until well into 1941. And by contrast, Saint-Denis, it was not a comfortable place, but it was very close to Paris, which meant that the climate was not as extreme as the climate in Upper Silesia, where Ilag 8 was. And also the prisoners at Saint-Denis had more access to visitors and aid organizations that were focused on helping them. You know, there were some pretty prominent prisoners at Saint-Denis. So it was, it was higher on the Red Cross's priority list, frankly. So Fred Martin went to Saint-Denis. Clarice Martin may also have been interned, though not for the entire war. Fred does mention, there's a commission form that he filled out later, and he says that Clarice was also interned, but he also lists her as living at several addresses in Paris during the occupation. So she may have been interned for a while and then paroled, which was a common experience for the French-born wives of British men. 
British-born wives were sometimes interned for the whole war, but most of the French wives were either not interned or interned for a shorter amount of time. As far as the French children, most internees were over the age of 16, but there were several Wargraves children, 8, 9, 10, 11 years old, who were interned with their mothers for anywhere between a few weeks and, in some cases, up to three years. So the best I can tell is that Clarice Martin and possibly Jeanette, though I'm not sure, may have been interned for a while and then paroled. And after that, their next address is very close to Saint-Denis. They lived as close as they could. They rented a room that was barely half a kilometer from the camp. The prisoners at Saint-Denis were eventually allowed to have visitors and sometimes even allowed to go out on parole for a few hours to walk to see their families. And that was a really a very different experience from the gardeners at Ilag 8, who were a thousand miles from their families. So Clarice and Jeanette stayed physically close to Fred Martin. They moved around to a couple of different rooms, but they stayed within a short distance of the camp. But life for an internee's family was pretty rough. There were all kinds of restrictions about what sort of jobs British women could have, and all sorts of curfews and registration requirements. They had to check in with the local police, sometimes once a week, sometimes every day, which made it really difficult for them to earn a living, to keep a job. When I was doing the research for this book, one of the really fascinating collections that I read was the correspondence of this group called the British Civilian Emergency Service, which was an aid organization run by a group of Americans who were affiliated with the YMCA. Their mission was to help British civilians who were stranded in Paris. And a lot of their work was helping people who were falling through the cracks. So, you know, French women who were not legally married to their British partners, or in many cases, British subjects from Iraq or Egypt or Palestine, who the Nazis treated them as British, but the British government didn't always treat them as British. So eventually the British started sending relief payments that were transmitted through the the Swiss and the Americans and sending those to stranded British civilians. And, you know, people from Iraq were not always eligible for those. The overall impression that I got from reading these papers was that British civilians in Paris, and especially British civilians who were marginalized in some other way, had a really, really tough time under the occupation. These are people who don't have access to jobs. After the Americans enter the war at the end of 1941, you know, the Americans are also interned, so this aid organization can't help them after that. So people are are really actually starving. Like, they don't have anything to live on at all. Luckily, Clarice and Fred Martin were legally married. So that meant that after she was released, Clarice could claim relief payments from the British government. The amount was based on Fred's pre-war wages, which, because he was a head gardener, they were a little bit higher than most gardeners. So Clarice got a small sum of money to live on every month. The problem was that inflation in occupied France was just completely out of control. Prices were often five or ten times what they had been in 1939, and that's when goods were available at all. So the relief payments that the British government sent were based on wages that Fred had earned while he was living in Little Bouquois in 1939. They weren't calibrated for living in Paris in 1943. So the money was enough to keep Clarice and Jeanette alive, but 
they were barely scraping by. And Fred was still at Saint-Denis. He was there for the whole time, from his arrest in August 1940 until the liberation of Paris in August 1944. Now, at the beginning, I said that there were two documents I wanted to share. First, that letter that Fred sent to his mother— But the second is actually a a small group of letters that Fred wrote when he was at Saint-Denis, and they're letters to Sir Fabian Ware. Civilian internees were allowed to receive parcels. They got food parcels from the Red Cross, and they were also allowed to receive parcels from their families and from approved organizations. The parcels were very thoroughly inspected by the Germans. The prisoners had to open the cans in front of guards. And one of the Wargraves men, a stone carver named Bernard Parsons, wrote about the inspections. He said the parcels were opened by the overzealous officer who seemed to imagine that he was dealing with the parcels of the most dangerous spies instead of a gang of harmless and very hungry men. Even the loaves of bread were cut in two. I think if there had been any heads on the sardines that he would have looked into the mouth of each one of them. These parcels were extremely important especially to the men at Illeg 8, where the food situation was pretty dire. But they were important at Saint-Denis, too. Now, the Wargraves Commission did not send food parcels, and they also didn't help the families send parcels. Several of the families, you know, parents, siblings, relatives living in the UK, did ask the commission if they could provide some funds so that the families could send food and clothing to the internees, but the commission said no. They would reimburse the British government for the aid payments, but they didn't want to get involved with helping families send parcels directly to the men. And then the commission actually even went a little bit farther than that. Many of the men, including Fred Martin, had set aside some of their monthly pay for their families in the UK. Fred had an allotment for his mother. He sent her one pound a month, which doesn't sound like very much, but he was making three pounds a week. So, you know, it's a percentage of his of his wages. But the Wargraves Commission stopped most of those allotments during the war. Their official position was that all of the gardeners' contracts were canceled by force majeure, so like by the unavoidable consequences of major events beyond anyone's control. And so since the contracts were canceled, the gardeners were not technically employees. They weren't being paid. So if they weren't being paid, they couldn't allot that pay to anyone. So people like Fred Martin's mother lost that one pound a month. The commission stopped paying her in, I think her last payment was January 1941. And that then just made it even harder for her to afford to send extra food or clothing or anything to Fred. The commission did send parcels to the men, but they were very specific kinds of parcels. Each Christmas, beginning in 1941, they sent a little gift to each of the internees. It was a parcel that contained 200 cigarettes and two pouches of pipe tobacco, and then also a Christmas card from Sir Fabian Ware. Which, you know, I mean, it it was a nice gift. They really did appreciate the tobacco, which was good for morale and good for trading with guards and other prisoners. But those Christmas parcels were also extremely tempting for thieves. And especially at Saint-Denis, most of the gardeners really did not receive those parcels. So... That's where Fred Martin's letters come in. So he's writing to Sir Fabian, thanking him for the parcels, but also letting him know that he's not actually receiving the parcels. And remember, the prisoners only get 
to send two letters a month and a postcard on Sundays. So Fred usually sends his two letters each month to his mother, but in this case, he's using one of his very precious letters to write a thank you note to Sir Fabian. To Mr. Fabian Ware, Imperial War Graves Commission, Woburn House, Woburn Green, High Wycombe, Bucks. Dear Sir, Many thanks for your kind letter of the 15th of October and its message for Christmas and the New Year. May I assure you of my deep appreciation and send you my most sincere good wishes for the season, trusting that the new year will bring you all happiness and better times. I have not yet received the Christmas parcel you have so kindly sent me, but I trust it will turn up shortly. Should you wish again to write me, may I suggest that letters and parcels should be addressed as follows. Frederick Martin, Matricule number 1426, Room 125, Fronstalag, 122, St. Denis, Seine, France. Again, thanking you most sincerely for your very kind thought, and with every good wish, I am sincerely yours. F. Martin. Time goes by. There's another Christmas in the internment camp. The commission sends another Christmas parcel. It sends them out in October, and in January, the card arrives at Saint Denis, but not the tobacco. So Fred writes again to Sir Fabian Ware. Dear Sir, just a line in answer to your letter of the 14th of October 1943, which I received here today. It gives me much pleasure to hear from you again after this long last of time and quite understand your feelings toward us. But believe me, we have still patience and the courage to hang on till the end. All I hope and trust that you yourself will do the same and with the same courage and wish to thank you again for all you are trying to do for some of us shut up here. Some of us is looking forward to the end of this nightmare. Dear sir, I am sorry to have to tell you, but up to the time of writing this letter to you, I have never received any parcels. As you say, a lot of the parcels did not arrive. If I receive any, shall let you know. Please excuse my writing, as I'm trying to write with a bandaged hand, trusting that you may be able to understand it. I thank you again for your kindness of writing. Please give my best wishes to all and accept the same yourself. Trusting to hear from you again, so best of luck and good health to you. I remain yours truly. F. Martin So in that letter, there are a couple of things that are creeping in. Fred Martin is still writing respectfully and humbly, But he's also letting some other things peek through as much as he can with the sensor. For when he's injured, his hand is bandaged. What's going on with that? He doesn't explain what's happened, but but something has happened. He's not in 100% perfect health. He's referring to his internment as a nightmare and emphasizing that he's shut up in the camp. And he's... Explaining to Sir Fabian Ware that not only has he not received his 1943 Christmas parcel, but that he's actually never received any of the parcels that the commission sent. There's one more letter. It's not dated, but it was written 
sometime between January 1944 and the liberation in August 1944. Fred still has not received a parcel, so he's writing to Sir Fabian again. To Sir Fabian Ware, hoping that yourself and all at home are quite well. This letter leaves myself well at time of writing to you. I am sorry that I have not wrote to you before, but after seeing your last letter of the 14th of October 1943, I have been waiting to see if your parcels got to me. But I am sorry to say that up till this day I have never received anything from England. It would have given me great pleasure to have received that parcel from you, but still it cannot be helped. I need not tell you that when we do receive anything from the old country, it makes us feel more cheerful. But still, sir, the courage and patience is still there, and we are looking forward to that great day of liberty. Sir, I thank you once again for all you have done in writing to me, and I know that the fault of your parcels lays in the transport of same, Our only trouble is that we do not get a good smoke. I thank you once again for all your trouble, and please give my best wishes to all at home. You will excuse me, sir, if I point out to you that I am in need of underclothing. If you could do anything for me, I shall be greatly obliged to you for doing so. I thank, sir, in advance, with my best wishes, and the best of luck and Good health. I remain, sir, yours sincerely. F. W. Martin. So cheer, O oh sir. Better days in store. This is, I think, an extraordinary letter. It captures something really crucial about the gardener's experience. Like a lot of their letters from the camps, this one has sort of a like a, a sunny veneer which is something that a lot of the gardeners did in their letters. They were trying to stay upbeat. They, you know, always are writing to their families to keep your chin up, keep smiling, that sort of thing. But Fred Martin's letter also underscores the the chasm between what the men in the camps actually need and how the commission is interacting with them. At first, Fred says that his only trouble is that they can't get a good smoke. But later he says, well, actually, I really, I'm in need of underwear, which that's, it's a sort of intimate and mundane need that was really a fact of life in the camps, of course, but it's sort of a bold thing to ask his boss's boss's boss for. I mean, to me, this letter really embodied that disconnect between what the gardeners needed and what the commission was willing to offer them. Fred Martin sort of a little bit cheekily asks Sir Fabian to send him some underwear instead of these phantom cigarettes that, you know, they're a nice thought, but they never actually arrive. So what happened to Fred Martin? The Allies and local resistance forces liberated Paris in August 1944, and Fred and the other prisoners at Saint-Denis were released. Fred, Clarice, and Jeanette went back to the Somme. Their house was wrecked, their possessions were long gone, so they stayed for a while with a Wargraves family in Bapaume. 
but eventually they went home to Buqua. And in November 1944, Fred was back at work in his cemeteries. He was one of about 60 gardeners who started back to work before the Imperial War Graves Commission officially restarted its work in France. The first War Graves officers to return were a group of three who arrived in France in early October 1944, but they didn't really start touring around the cemeteries until the very end of October because they didn't have a car. These three officers thought of themselves as an advance party, but when they started driving around to the cemeteries, what they found were dozens of gardeners already there. Many of them were people like Fred Martin, who had been released from Saint-Denis, and there were also a few Irish gardeners who had never been interned, along with some older men and a few idiosyncratic cases where the gardeners were just never arrested. And many of those people were already back at work, just like Fred Martin. The commission's first official day back at work was January 1st, 1945, and they put those 60 men back to work right away. But that was not really ideal in many ways. Fred and the other gardeners who were already on the ground in France were not in good shape physically. They hadn't had adequate rest or medical care. Most of them were newly released internees, and they were nearly all in bad health. Even the ones who hadn't been interned were destitute. They had just lived through years and years of occupation. Most of them did agree to go back to work, in part because the War Graves Commission arranged to let them purchase army rations for themselves. Not for their families, just for themselves. They got a bulk box every two weeks, and they paid for it out of their wages at prices that were much, much lower than anything they could buy on the regular market in France. These were the same rations soldiers got, so they were high in calories, high in protein, high in fat, lots of canned goods, meat, powdered milk, and the gardeners and their families really did need those supplies, so they did agree to go back to work right at the beginning. But those first gardeners who went back to work in France were people like Fred Martin, people who were in pretty dire circumstances. The commission did start sending over small groups of gardeners who had spent the war in the UK later in 1945, but those first men back to work were mostly people who had been in France already. So Fred Martin went back to Bucois. He was still a head gardener, and he stayed on with the commission until 1963, He was actually awarded a British Empire Medal in 1949 in recognition of his dedicated service. Fred and Clarice also adopted another of Clarice's nieces, Marinette, in the 1950s. Like most of the interned gardeners, Fred Martin did eventually get a financial settlement from the Imperial War Graves Commission. It wasn't an admission of any wrongdoing on the commission's part. It was an ex gratia payment meaning it was completely discretionary, not an admission that their contracts were still in force. The settlement was loosely based on the men's pre-war wages, though it was actually a lower number than what they had been earning in 1940. The commission had to recoup the money that they had paid out through relief payments and allotment. So in Fred Martin's case, out of his settlement money, the commission recouped the money that they had paid to his mother before they canceled her allotment, and also the money that Clarice had taken as relief payments. They paid that back to the British government. So after they did that, after they took out the money for the relief payments and the allotments, Fred received a check for the rest of the settlement. It was 49 pounds, 
11 shillings and sixpence. Now, that might sound like no money at all, but it wasn't nothing. To put it in context, after the war, the Gardeners' Union filed several claims against the Wargraves Commission, and the result was that their pay was raised substantially from what it was pre-war. With those raises, in 1948, Fred Martin was making 325 pounds a year, so that's six pounds, five shillings a week, where he had been making four pounds a week before the war. So he did get a raise, and 49 pounds, his financial settlement, was around eight weeks' wages. It wasn't nothing, but it also wasn't a lot. And worse than the amount was the fact that the settlement money was really delayed. Fred Martin got his check in February 1948, so that was three and a half years after he was liberated. His family, after the occupation, had no savings. They had very few possessions. They had to rebuild their whole lives, but they didn't have the money to do it. So those years were very hard for a lot of the ex-internees, and some of them even said that the years after the Second World War were harder than the years after the First World War, which is saying a lot considering the destruction and the landscape that they lived in after the First World War. Fred Martin worked for the Wargraves Commission until 1963, when he was 65 years old, and he lived the rest of his life in Buqua. He died there in 1977. The last documents in his personnel file concern his death. There's a letter from his daughter, Marinette, to the Wargraves Commission saying that she can't afford to bury him. Fred and Clarice died within a few months of one another, and Marinette was raising two kids on her own, and she just couldn't keep up with the expenses. So when she wrote to the commission, she was about to lose the family's house, and she was begging the commission for help covering the funeral expenses. She said, I am not ashamed to ask you for some assistance. The funeral costs are very expensive. I cannot make the total payment because I am still looking for a job, which is difficult in France. The notary wants to take possession of the house. I do not want this, as my parents made great sacrifices to get it. Before dying, my father told me to contact you. There's a note along with this letter um, that was written by Mrs. Jean Amos, who was the Wargraves Commission's welfare officer in the 1970s. And Mrs. Amos says, I feel that this is a case where we would be wrong not to examine all the possibilities of helping this woman. Sympathy does not pay the bills. Jean Amos recognizes that the commission itself can't just hand over cash, but she did promise that she would approach the Gardener's Benevolent Fund, which was sort of a mutual aid fund maintained by the gardeners themselves. And if they didn't give money for the funeral, she said she would look into other charities, like she hoped one of the naval charities might be able to help since Fred Martin was a Navy veteran. I don't know if Marinette ever did get any money to help her with the funeral costs. I don't know what happened to her. But I do know that Fred and Clarice are buried in the civilian cemetery in Buqua. Not in the Wargrave section, but very nearby. They have a gray granite tombstone that's similar to other French civilian graves. Sometimes Wargrave's gardeners got special staff variations of the white CWGC headstone. They look very similar to the standard headstones, but they, they have a flat top. But Fred does not have one of those. He and Clarice have a French-style stone, and from the look of it, someone still remembers them. It's common for French graves to have decorations and offerings left on them, and their grave does. Someone is leaving flowers and votives and poppy wreaths on their grave. And there is a little memorial plaque that says, To our departed comrade, 
CWGC, though I don't know whether it was sent by the commission officially or if it's from the Gardner's Benevolent Fund or another group of his colleagues. But if you're in Buqua and you're visiting First World War graves or Second World War graves, do stop and say hello to Fred Martin in the Buqua Communal Cemetery. So that's all I have about Frederick Martin for now. He was a typical Wargraves gardener in a lot of ways. And as I continue this series, I hope you'll see points of commonality between his experience and many others. But I'll also branch out and talk about some people whose stories diverged from the usual. I hope you'll come back for the next episode, which is about Charles Henry Holton, a gardener from Hebutern, who was the first Wargraves gardener to die in an internment camp. Many thanks to Jamie Trotter for reading Fred Martin's letters, and to Andy Locke for visiting his grave in Buqua. Thanks to Fiona Hopkins for production and sound editing. Letters by Fred Martin can be found in his personnel file at the Commonwealth War Graves Commission archives, with thanks to Michael Greet. Music by Albert Bayer and upbeat.